Welcome to the Patriarch Study. I'm Debbie Hammond. Let me begin by just asking you this. Have you noticed that everyone seems to love a good story? I suppose in my lifetime, I've probably heard five or 6,000 sermons and talks of all other sorts as well. And over and over, I've seen an audience perk up the moment the speaker begins telling a story. A major goal in our God of the Word studies is to grasp the complete story of the Bible from beginning to end. The second part of the book of Genesis, which is our text in this patriarch study, is one of the best places in the Bible to find a continuous and enjoyable storyline, one that's packed with life lessons. In fact, I'm pretty confident you'll find it difficult at times to stop reading some parts of the story without continuing to their resolution. It's just that good of a story. Genesis gives us so much critical information necessary for accurately understanding the rest of the Bible's story that we've devoted two out of our eight God of the Word studies just to this one book of Genesis. The first 11 chapters were covered in the previous study, Beginnings. The Patriarch study covers the remainder of Genesis, chapters 12 through 50. Although these chapters only tell part of a much bigger story, it's an extremely important part. In today's introduction, I'm going to sketch the broader story of the Bible so we see where the patriarchs fit in. Then I'll review what was covered in Genesis 1 through 11, briefly introduce the patriarchs, and end with a personal story and application. Throughout, I hope you'll be reminded that God is writing a story, a story that will be known and celebrated throughout eternity. So let's begin by just spending a few minutes sketching the broader story the Bible tells. The opening chapters of Genesis record the primeval history of creation, mankind's fall into sin, a cataclysmic flood sent by God to purge the earth, and the emergence and spread of the nations as we know them today over the earth. We also find our first hint that God has a plan a plan to restore and redeem his fallen creation. He promised to do so through the seed, the offspring of the woman, a deliverer. Messiah is the Hebrew term. And this first, this promise is first hinted at as early as Genesis 3.15. Now, the history in Genesis 1 through 11 clearly makes the point that because of sin, the inclination of mankind is self-interest, not God's interests. Therefore, God inaugurated his plan by choosing one man in whom he would work to build faith and through whom he would build a nation that would represent his interests in the world. Abraham 
and his family, who eventually became the nation Israel. Genesis 12 through 50 introduces the patriarchs of this family. God entered a covenant with them, guaranteeing very specific promises, including a land of their own, that was Canaan, many descendants, and blessing, blessing both to them and through them to the rest of the world. At the end of Genesis, we learn that as a result of a famine, Abraham's family left Canaan and went to reside in Egypt. Well, the book of Exodus opens 400 years after the end of Genesis, and the Israelites, or Hebrews as they were first called, had become a sizable group. The Egyptians felt threatened and forced them into slavery. So God used Moses, a Hebrew with an unusual personal history, to lead his people out of Egypt to Canaan, their promised land. En route, God and the fledgling nation entered a covenant. The covenant had stipulations, civil, moral, and ceremonial laws by which the, the people, the Hebrew people, the Israelites, were to be governed. Now, according to the terms of the covenant, if they obeyed God's laws, things would go well for them. But if they didn't, they'd meet disaster. The laws were intended not only to protect young Israel, but also to teach Israel more about God's character, since they were his chosen representatives. As it turned out, it was actually Moses' successor, Joshua, who led the Israelites in the military campaign to take Canaan. The Lord granted them impressive victories, and each of the 12 tribes of Israel received a land inheritance. But they failed to obey God's command to take possession of all of Canaan, and as a result, suffered at the hands of raiders. Overall, the next three to 400 years was a dark time in Israel's history. Whenever their oppression by raiding peoples became great, and they cried out to the Lord, he raised up a military leader called a judge to deliver them. Eventually, preferring not to be exclusively dependent on God's leadership and his appointment of a judge, Israel asked for a king. A king would produce an heir, you know, a natural successor like their neighboring nations had. After all, Waiting and depending solely on God alone is so uncomfortable, right? Much better, they thought, to have a natural succession of kings. Thankfully, God is bigger than our insecurities. And at times, he even works through them to accomplish his plan. So God instructed the last judge, Samuel, to anoint Israel's first two kings, Saul first and later David. Israel quickly discovered that monarchy is only as good as the ruler on the throne. Under the leadership of David and his son Solomon, Israel reached her pinnacle economically, militarily, and spiritually. Under Solomon's less wise son, the nation split, with the northern tribes maintaining the name Israel and the southerners taking the name of their dominant tribe, Judah. 
for centuries thereafter, the northern and southern kingdoms were predominantly unfaithful to God. God sent prophets through whom he issued warnings. But when the warnings went unheeded over and over through many, many years, God eventually followed through on the terms of the covenant and brought disaster. The Assyrian Empire overthrew northern Israel, and roughly 150 years later, the Babylonians overthrew Judah. The people of Israel and Judah were forcefully carried off into captivity. Well, roughly 70 years after the destruction of the temple in Judah, in Jerusalem, God moved the heart of the reigning king of Persia to allow the captive Israelites to return to their homeland. Some did. Many didn't. Those who returned rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem and the temple. However, Israel wasn't what it had been. In his grace, God continued to speak to Israel through prophets who encouraged them to keep their eyes on God's promises. He promised a deliverer, and this Messiah would restore the kingdom. Unfortunately, the Jews believed that their primary problem was political, being controlled by other nations. And this skewed their expectation of Messiah. God, in fact, had a much bigger plan. Deliverance from sin, the very root of all mankind's problems. God's solution was much more than political. After 400 years of prophetic silence, John the Baptist, the last Old Testament prophet, announced the Messiah's arrival. The four Gospels present Jesus Christ as the promised deliverer, giving the account of his life, death, and resurrection. Ironically, by and large, Israel rejected him. They found his message offensive and ultimately plotted against and murdered him. Jesus claimed his death was voluntary, that no one else had the power to take it from him. Only he had the power to lay his life down. He said he would lay it down for his friends and that he was doing God's work. He also predicted that he had the power to take his life up again. He insisted his followers must believe in him. The Gospels end with an account of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, his commission for his followers to make disciples of all nations, and his return, his ascension to heaven. He promised to return one day and take all his followers to be with him in heaven forever. Now, the book of Acts gives us the history of the earliest followers of Jesus after he returned to heaven. Very early in the book, we realize that these eyewitnesses were fully convinced that Jesus was all he claimed to be. They taught that his death was the exclusive means by which we can receive forgiveness of sins, be saved from sin's death penalty, 
and be restored to a right relationship with God. They claimed God's salvation was available not only to Jews, but to everyone. The early church grew to include Gentile converts, especially under the missionary efforts of the apostle Paul. He, and other leaders, wrote letters of instruction to the local churches, fleshing out the implications of Jesus' teachings, including practical wisdom for everyday living and a more complete understanding of God's plan, tracing it in the book of Revelation to a glorious restoration of life just as it was before the fall that will carry on into eternity. The Bible is the story of God's redemptive plan in human history, and it tells this one continuous, unified story from beginning to end, a story that will be known and celebrated throughout eternity. I hope in hearing this story, this summary of the story, at least one important biblical truth is overwhelmingly evident to you. Because God is sovereign, he knows all the details of human history and has determined its outcome. Let me repeat that. Because God is sovereign, the Bible teaches he is sovereign. Because he's sovereign, he knows all the details of human history and has determined its outcome. The Bible assures us not only of God's triumph in human history generally, but also of the triumph of his good purposes in the life of each person who loves him. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. He can do this because he's sovereign and he's willing to do it because he is good. My friend, is there anything you're not convinced God can work for your good? With what trouble do you need to trust him right now? As you read of his work in human history through the pages of the Bible, will you dare to believe his promises, and to see your place in his grand story? If you're a follower of Christ, it's a story you'll rejoice over throughout eternity. Well, now that we've considered the story of the Bible in a general way, I should mention the sub-story of the patriarchs in particular, beginning with some background information. As I already mentioned, the opening 11 chapters of Genesis set the stage for the substory of the patriarchs by describing, describing four main events, creation, the fall of man into sin, the flood, and the dispersion of nations. And those events lead us to several conclusions that will impact our reading of the remainder of Genesis. Let me mention just three of those. First is the idea of limited influence of the faithful few. Limited influence of the faithful few. You see, the genealogies within Genesis 1 through 11 indicate that after the fall, 
a small number of individuals were faithful to God, such as Adam's son, Seth, and his descendants, Enoch and Noah. Genesis 11 links Abraham back to his forefathers. Like Seth, Enoch, and Noah, Abraham was also to become a friend of God. And we're so encouraged by their stories. Yet, yet, the faithful few still handed down a sin nature. Their influence was quickly smothered by sin's contamination and degradation, even on their own descendants. Genesis 4 through 11 emphasizes man's hopelessness apart from God. Second, a second and related truth established in those early chapters of Genesis is that sin held mankind captive to a cycle of spiritual decline. Sin held mankind captive to a downward spiral of spiritual decline, a cycle of spiritual decline. Human efforts to fix the problem weren't adequate. And while God slowed the infestation of sin by extreme measures, such as the flood and the dispersion of nations, he had yet to enact his plan to free his creation from sin altogether. And that leads to the third conclusion, that God was and is still in control. God is still in control. While sin dominates the world in Genesis 3 through 11, it doesn't commandeer God's story. The chapters leading to the story of the patriarchs emphasize the need for God's promised deliverer. And as we'll see, God used Israel's patriarchs to initiate his plan and bring the Messiah to earth. Now, I should say a few things about the patriarchs themselves. Again, I'll give you three, three facts that are good to keep in mind when we're reading this part of the story. While Genesis 1 through 11 describes four main events, Genesis 12 through 50 highlights four main characters, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And one thing you should know is that this fourth man, Joseph, is a patriarch of Israel but in the same sense that all 11 of his brothers were patriarchs, each man's descendants became a tribe of Israel. However, unlike the other three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Joseph was not an ancestor of Jesus Christ. That privilege belonged to his brother Judah. Nevertheless, Joseph is listed as the fourth patriarch, because he plays such a critical role in the development of the story in the history of Israel and in the fulfillment of God's promises. So keep that in mind. Another noteworthy comment in introducing Israel's forefathers is that whereas men like Seth, Enoch, and Noah were introduced to us as overall faithful, obedient God followers, that's often not the case with the patriarchs. These men had a lot to learn. Men, they were men whom God transformed. 
Each discovered his personal inadequacy and became a friend of God. Beloved pastor and author Ray Stedman pointed out that despite their many failures, and sometimes through their failures, the life of each patriarch highlights a different aspect of our relationship with God. Abraham's life is a portrait of faith. Isaac's life is a portrait of sonship. Jacob's life portrays sanctification. And Joseph's life pictures glorification. Throughout our study, we're going to explore these aspects of our relationship with God. The patriarchs were men who needed help. So finally, a common thread throughout the patriarch story is what appear as ongoing threats to the fulfillment of God's promises. Again, many of these threats result from the patriarch's own failures. These threats include things like the possibility that someone other than Isaac will become Abraham's heir, that Jacob might be murdered by his brother, and so on. And these threats bring tension to the story. In a greater sense, the tension isn't resolved until Jesus the Messiah is crucified and victoriously resurrected. But there is some sense of resolution at the end of Genesis, and even more by the time we reach the book of Joshua. So just summarizing, the part of the Bible in which the patriarch story is told is critical to understanding the means by which God determined to carry out his plan of salvation for all the world. More specifically, this part of the Bible helps us to understand that God's choosing and promises to the patriarchs launched his plan of salvation. He's writing a story that will be known and celebrated throughout eternity. You know, sometimes I find it easy to forget that the Bible characters were real people. Although our life stories, ours, aren't included in the pages of the Bible, it doesn't mean that our part in God's story of human history won't be known and celebrated throughout eternity. Just as God's work in the life of each patriarch was unique, each believer plays a unique role in that story as well. Psalm 107.2 says, Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. So in order to encourage you to consider your own part in the story of human history, the grand story God's writing, I thought you might find it helpful to hear a bit of the story God's written so far with my life. It's really his story and all to his glory. To the best of my parents' knowledge, they were both the first among their entire extended families to know the Lord. My father went on to become a pastor and then spent 23 years teaching Old Testament and archaeology on the seminary level. At home, my mother modeled the Christian pilgrimage and her love of the Lord and his word. 
I personally don't remember the time I received Christ as my Savior. My parents tell me I was quite young. I asked to be baptized and was baptized when I was 10. Now, while there's no doubt in my mind that I was a true follower of Jesus Christ, it wasn't until I was in my 30s that the Lord worked through a particular Christian parachurch organization to grow my love for him and his word in a way that is much, was much deeper. I now see that it was a season of special preparation for me. And during these years, I became convinced the Lord was calling me to a ministry of Bible teaching, a conviction that felt so intimidating, but was regularly affirmed by others. For the first time in my life, I began to consider that God was writing a story with my life. I began to see my own personal history in light of this story. Even though I had no idea exactly how the story would continue to unfold, I could only assume that my growing passion to teach God's Word was likely to be part of it. I think it's difficult to understand my story without realizing how deep my conviction became that God was calling me to a lifelong teaching ministry and that I needed to follow his leading. But there were two things that seemed real obstacles to me. Obstacles I had to depend on God to overcome. First, I had no reason to feel I was qualified to teach or lead others. Yes, I had some training, but I knew that even this barely equipped me to serve the Most High God. The idea of talking before others literally terrified me. Second, although my passion to teach was great, the opportunity for me to actually do so rarely came. If others hadn't continued to affirm my calling, some quite adamantly, I would have had serious reason to doubt it. Because as it turned out, no clear opportunity to teach regularly presented itself for another eight years. Well, when it finally came, oh, how I sensed God's pleasure and real personal fulfillment that I was doing exactly what he'd created me to do. But still, I sensed there was something more, something else God had in mind. At the time, I could only assume it must be additional responsibility in the venue through which I was already teaching. Now, my husband and I had always been interested in foreign missions. And about that time, our family began more serious discussions about the possibility of moving overseas. In fact, I spoke with the executive director of the organization I taught through about being used by them to teach the Bible in Kosovo, a place we'd visited and thought God might be calling us to. Much to our surprise, this was not God's plan. In fact, he wasn't calling us to move overseas at all, nor was he going to lead me to continue teaching through the venue of that same organization. I had clearly interpreted 
the passions God put in me. But in retrospect, I realized I'd come to wrong conclusions about exactly how God wanted to use me. So after nearly 20 years in the southwestern United States, where God had developed such passion in me to teach, and I'd had my first opportunity, we found ourselves, by God's clear leading, moving to the spiritually and physically cold climate of the northeastern United States. Upon leaving that place and the people we'd so cherished and the responsibilities in which God had used me, I came to a real crisis point. I was leaving behind a flourishing, well-organized teaching ministry, a ministry I knew God had called me to, with no assurance of any such opportunity in the new location. Yet there was no doubt about God's leading to our new location. I recall one particular morning when I locked myself away in a room with God's word, and I came upon the story in Genesis, we'll reach in just a few weeks, in which God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his only son, the son God had promised him. I was aware that God was asking me to sacrifice something I believed he'd given me, something I too had waited a number of years for. He was also asking me to give up my own expectation of the way I thought he would write my story. Knowing that Hebrews 11 tells us Abraham obeyed God, believing God could raise his son Isaac from the dead, I determined that I too would obey, and I concluded that if I conceded to follow God to the new location, he, he might still raise up an opportunity for me there within the organization that had become so valuable to me spiritually. But I realized that I must also conclude, as Abraham did, that if God preferred to consume my sacrifice and permanently removed teaching ministry through that particular venue, he could and would raise up new life by leading me to teach in another way. Well, during these first few years in our new location, I admit there were times I was tempted to believe God had just forgotten the passion he'd given me for something more in the way of teaching and missions. I kept reminding myself of God's faithfulness, although I no longer had any idea what he wanted me to do. I still believed he'd called me to teach his precious word and that he would show me his plan one step at a time. After all, he was the one writing the story. And I knew from the lives of Bible characters that a season in the wilderness, so to speak, was sometimes part of a person's story. Almost four years after we moved to the new location, our, our eldest son was released from his service in the military he had deployed to the Middle East as a married man with a newborn son, but sadly, he returned as a single father to a child who didn't know him, a child my husband and I had been raising in his absence. Another year went by in which the two of them resided with us. Having our son home, of course, lessened my responsibilities to my grandson considerably, and additionally, our own youngest children were almost grown. Uh, 
So right at this time, I received a phone call asking me if I would consider teaching a Bible study at a local church. A small window of opportunity seemed to be opening. And I knew before I even hung up that God was telling me that I should do this and accept. This was his doing. Five people showed up. Just five. It was a small but a very committed group. Well, the rest of my story, as God's been writing it in the years since, can be summed up by saying that God has done abundantly, exceedingly abundantly more than I could have asked or imagined. And he has continued to orchestrate every part of the story. That small group of five blossomed into multiple groups. One individual suggested something that hadn't occurred to me. Maybe we should work our way through the Bible. Another asked me to write down the material so her church would use, could use it. That wasn't something I'd been doing to that up to that point. When a third individual bemoaned missing the study several weeks in a row, a tech-minded attendee started a blog for sharing the materials that I'd started writing down, ultimately leading to today's website. Then a, a bizarre dream led me to send one lesson to a missionary friend, and ultimately, this led to international use of the study. One day, a woman I didn't know very well asked what I do with my time. As I told her about the Bible study, she tearfully shared that the Lord had recently given her funds and she knew that she was to use them for an undisclosed international outreach and that as I was speaking to her, the Lord at that moment was prompting her to help fund the translation of God of the Word into Chinese. Wow. Just as these lessons started being used overseas, the Lord brought a Korean national who grew up in Africa and had a master's degree in English to my local study. That dear woman voluntarily edited the materials and gave me feedback on cultural relevance for years. Later, God brought a wonderful graphic designer to the study and so many others who came to me volunteering their time, believing God had called them to be involved. And those are just a few of the ways God's been write, uh, writing me into his story. The patriarch story is of four men who inherited God's promises and the unique way God worked in each of their lives. Even with the canon of the scriptures complete, God is still working out his grand story in human history and in the lives of his people. And every individual has a place in God's story. That's our second principle today. Every individual has a place in God's story. Are you convinced that God only writes wonderful stories in the lives of 
other people. But that he can't or won't write such a story that includes you? Perhaps the problem is that you just haven't opened your eyes to consider your role in his grand story. Or be, perhaps at this particular moment, you primarily see so many loose ends in your personal history, you just can't envision how your life could ever become part of a greater story. Each of us will have some chapters in our life story that are more adventuresome than others. Some of the chapters that seem quite dull while we're living them may, in hindsight, be the very times when we see God was shaping us or working through us in the most important of ways. Will you ask God to give you the vision to see and the faith to believe that he is also writing a story with your life? Personally, I'm convinced that just as the characters of the Bible were unable in their lifetimes to see how the story God was writing in their lives was part of one greater continuous unified story, one day in heaven, we will each see that the story of our lives is like a portion of a beautiful tapestry that God has woven together. One important part of a grander story that will be known and celebrated through all eternity.